When I was practicing as a doctor, I would sometimes have to give bad news to my patients. It was never fun, but sometimes it was needed. It would have been malpractice, wouldn't it, if I only gave patients news they liked to hear. I only told them things that were positive. What kind of doctor would shy away from giving bad news because he didn't like to do it? Or worse, so the patients would stay with him instead of going to the clinic down the road. I don't like talking about hell. It's an awful topic. But if I am to be a faithful preacher of God's word, then I have to do that. Because it's there, and it's real, and Jesus warns us about it, and we've come to that part of the Bible as we're working through Matthew where he talks about it, and so we have to. Later on in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus would describe it in verse 41 as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. And in verse 46, he would say, he describes it as eternal punishment. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? God is infinitely great. He's infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, and infinitely good. And so to rebel against him, to insult his holiness, to refuse to submit to his, to his goodness, that is infinitely evil. And the punishment is eternal. The justice of God is both real and scary. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Last week, as we were reading this passage in uh, Matthew 23, we ended with those terrible words of Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees, those leaders of Israel, in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Those of you who are here, and we read the whole passage, you remember that, that Jesus was there in the temple, preaching against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. They were very religious, but they were also very wicked. Religion for them was simply a means of self-glorification. They did not seek the glory of God or the glory that came from God. They used religion to make themselves seem important. And they were legalists. They were obsessive about keeping some parts of the law, even the point of, of tithing the herbs in their gardens, but they neglected the really important things of justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were hypocrites, pretending to be more righteous than everyone else. And on the outside they looked so good, but on the inside they were filthy with wickedness. And worst of all, they were murderers. When God sent His Son into the world, when God's King finally entered Jerusalem, when God came to His temple to save His people, they plotted to kill Him. And by the end of the week, Jesus would be dead as a result of their plotting and scheme. Israel would have firmly and decisively rejected his rule. And yet, this one, this, this king that they rejected, really was who he claimed to be. He, is, he was the one who would rule the world. He would also be the judge of the world. 
and he would be their judge as well. That's why he says, and he's able to say in verse 33, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How are you to be escaped? In verse 19 and 31, which, they, which we looked at last week, we saw how their ancestors murdered the prophets. They claimed they would never do it. And just in a few days, they would murder the most important prophet of all. In fact, not just the prophet, but God himself made human. The crimes of their ancestors would, would pale into insignificance beside this one. How could they escape God's judgment? Well, they could escape. They could escape if they listened to the warnings. They could escape if they heard God's word and repented. Jesus says in verse 34, Therefore, because of this, right, for this reason, what reason? Or to escape being sentenced to hell. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Even while they were plotting to kill Jesus, Jesus was planning to give them another chance. Even while they were plotting to kill him, he planned to send forth messengers to urge him to turn from sin. Even as they were planning to kill him, he planned to send them his apostles, urge to urge them to repent and, and receive him as king. And would they do that? Oh, verse 34, second half. Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. That's what the leaders of Israel were going to do to Jesus and to the messengers that he would send them after his resurrection. They would reject them and persecute them. Yet as they did that, in some mysterious way, they would be fulfilling God's own plans to bring them to judgment for their sin. Because verse 35 continues. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus said, Jesus said that by rejecting him and his apostles, that generation was going to feel the punishment of God for all the righteous blood that was shed in the land to that point. Every one of God's prophets who were killed would be avenged on that generation. Now that seems strange, doesn't it? What's going on here? I mean, it's bad enough that they're held accountable for the death of Jesus. Why should they be held accountable for the death of all the prophets of previous generations as well? Now, I wonder how many of you have been to Sunway Lagoon. Have you been to Sunway Lagoon? Yeah, good on you, mate. Anyone else been to Sunway Lagoon? Well, Judy's been, yeah. Oh, well, there's more people. Admit it, alright? It's fun. Right. Now, in the kids' play area, it's some land of good. There are these buckets that are constantly filling with water. Right. Um, there's one very big one at the lake, and there's lots of small ones in the in the kids' play area that you're not supposed to go into. That if you go into, they would until you get out. You know? Anyway, these buckets slowly fill up with water as the water pours in, and then suddenly, when the weight of the water reaches a certain amount, it gets a certain level, the bucket tips over, and all the water comes pouring out. Right? And if you happen to be under the bucket at the time, you get very, very wet. 
the Bible tells us that God doesn't just judge individuals, right, that is individual judgment, but he also judges nations. He doesn't just send people to hell, he destroys nations. The final judgment of the individual is at the, is at, is at the very end, but the wrath of God against nations is like those, like those buckets of water. He doesn't do it all at once. He waits until the nation and then their sins have accumulated and become very big, and then he pronounces judgment on them. For example, in Genesis 15, he says to Abram and his family, you can't go into the promised land yet because the sins of the Amorites are not complete. That is, Abraham and his sinners have to wait for another 400 years before they can take over the promised land because the sins of the nation there is not big enough for God to, to keep them out of the land yet. Or in Daniel 8, when God is trying to destroy a Greek kingdom, he says he will destroy when their transgressions have reached their limit. And God waits for sin to accumulate to a certain level before punishing the nation. Now remember, we've moved on from talking about individual sin here, talking about national sin. Jesus says God has been holding back his wrath on Israel's sin. And this generation would experience it. Israel as a nation was about to commit the crime that tops all crimes, uh, the sin of rejecting and killing the Messiah, which would fill their bucket to overflowing, and everything God was holding there would come down. I'm not talking about the final judgment, I'm talking about history. And so Jesus says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. When Jesus pronounces judgment on Israel, he does not do it with glee. Not the kind of judge who enjoys pronouncing judgment on people. Yeah? Doesn't get a kick out of it. But he's, furthermore, he's not the kind of judge who's just, who's just getting even. Say, here you are, this is what you've done, this is what, in fact, this is what you're going to do to me. Right, good riddance. It's not like that either. More than that, he's not even the kind of judge who's impassive. He's not the cool, calm, collected judge who just, just decides everything justly. He doesn't feel anything as he does. Just, you know what I mean? Oh. He's actually sad. He's actually upset. He's grieving for the nation he's a pronouncing judgment on. He had on a previous occasion cried for Jerusalem and I suspect he's crying here too. Listen, listen to the depth of feeling he has for the city that will come under God's judgment. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Jerusalem. Those of you who are here when we are look, look, uh, hearing God's word in Ruth, remember how she said to Boaz, spread out your wings over your serpent for you are a redeemer. Remember that? She wanted him to take her under his love and his protection. That's what Jesus wanted to do for Jerusalem. He wanted to gather her children and protect her. Like a mother hen takes her chickens and her chicks under her wings. If only that let him, he would have loved them, he would have protected them. 
He would have shielded them from the, from the punishment that they as a nation deserve for the way they treat the prophets. He would have gladly taken the judgment for them, for all the sins of their past. He would have been their saviour as well as their king. And he cried, I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her, as a hen gathers her brood. But, you would not. You would not. And so sad and upset, he predicts the future in verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. In a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple. Back in Matthew 21, earlier this week, when Jesus quotes the scripture, he calls the temple, my house. He's been talking about the temple, and now he says, your house. And in two verses' time, the first verse of chapter 24, he would leave. Never to enter again. The word desolate in that verse may or may not have been there in the original. We're not, we're not sure about that. Right. I think it's probably not meant to be there. House is going to be desolate. We'll see that in chapter 24. But the point that Jesus is making is that the temple has been left. It's no longer God's house. It's just their house. Remember today's Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 12? It was just before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 587 B.C. What was God saying he was going to do? Remember, he said, Jeremiah 12, verse 7, he said, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. And Babylonians came in. In Ezekiel 10, uh, it's about the same thing. In Ezekiel 10, you, Ezekiel has a vision of God's glory. And it's a vision that God gave Ezekiel just before the, uh, the, the, the Babylonians came in to, to destroy Jerusalem. And because of the wickedness of the city, in, in, vision, in his vision, he could see God's glory leaving the temple, leaving the city. And when God left, judgment came. And Jesus says, your house is left to you. And he leaves. It's about to happen again. God has come to his temple as the prophets had said. He had cleansed his temple. He had taught in the temple. He had healed the blind and the lame. But the religious leaders, the temple authorities, the rulers of Israel, they had rejected him. They sought to trap him. They plotted to kill him. So in the end, he would leave. God would leave his temple and the judgment would fall. And Jesus' final words is he left the temple in verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. They're words that uh, were used when the crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem earlier in the week, recognized him as king. Because Psalm 119 is a, is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that talks about the coming of the Messiah, the King. 
Early on that we read in the quote of verse 22 of the psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's him. But until or unless they recognize him as their king, until or unless Israel as a whole realized the mistake and join the group that says to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he will not return to his temple. And until he returns, they cannot say, we bless you from the house of the Lord. From the second half of verse 26. At least not from that temple. Because the temple would not be God's house anymore. It would just be their house. An empty shell. Until it would be destroyed 40 years later by the Romans. And Jerusalem would be left in ruins. Israel would persist in her unbelief. In the book of Acts, the apostles were sent to Israel, just as Jesus said. In Acts chapter 13, verse 19, for example, Peter calls upon Israel to repent. They say, look, repent that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ upon his view, Jesus, from whom heaven must receive until the time of, for, for restoring all things. If they repented, God would send Jesus back as their king. But the rulers of Israel, what they do, they arrested Peter. And then they murdered Stephen. Israel as a whole would not turn to her Messiah. And as a whole, even today, she has not turned. Of course, the true Israel, by definition, is those who are in the kingdom of the King of Israel, Christ Jesus. Are consisting of the Jews who do believe in their Messiah and the Gentiles who have been grafted in. But the physical Jews, Israel as a nation, as a race, has by and large continued to reject her king. Our passage today doesn't actually tell us either way whether they will call upon Jesus as their Messiah in the end. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 seems to hint that they will. In Romans 11, he actually reminds us this hardening of Israel is partial. It says in verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Right? It's partial. Is there are many, many, many Jews who have come to live in the kingdom, who have come to have Jesus as the true Messiah. It's a majority who are hardened, but not the whole. It's a partial hardening. And it's also a temporary hardening that until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Now, I'm quite happy to say I need to do a bit more work on this passage. Right? And I reserve the right to change my mind on this. Right? But from what I can see so far, it seems to me that one day the bulk of Israel will recognize their king. And the Jewish nation as a whole will realize that Jesus is indeed Lord and come under his rule and submit to him. That the stone that they had rejected has indeed become the head of the corner and cry out to him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then, and only then, will they see him again as king. Whether or not that's the case, what do we learn from this passage for ourselves? Well, First of all, we see the character of God in the person of Jesus. 
God is just. He must punish sin. And yet at the same time, he does not want to punish us. He is rightly angry at sin, but he also loves us. That is God's character, and it's been consistently to God's character, right through. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God has no pleasure in punishing people. Jesus showed his Father's heart as he wept for Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, if we are God's children, then we should cultivate hearts like his as well. Hearts that are never callous to the future of those who reject the Lord Jesus. Hearts that may rejoice in the justice of God, but never at the peril of sinners. Hearts that long instead for people to turn and be saved. In a few moments we're going to sing a song about the coming judgment. And there are verses in the song that are joyful, that speak of the resurrection. There's one verse in verse 3 that, that speaks of the future of the lost. And when we sing that, friends, we sing it as a dirge. Music team will play it that way. It's meant to be sad. There's nothing worse than coming under the punishment of a living God. And God grieves for those who face judgment. And we should too. It is only right. God does not want to send people to hell any more than Jesus wanted to see Jerusalem destroyed. That's his character. Secondly, we have a warning. See, we all do things at one level that we don't want to do. Most of you will go to work tomorrow morning, won't you? Most of you, if asked, would not want to go to work tomorrow morning, would you? Right? You'd rather go to the movies. Now, of course, in the bigger picture, you know you have to go to work. Right? Well, actually, you don't have to. You could go to the movies. Right? You do have a choice. Go to work, if you don't really want to do, or go to the movies, which you prefer, but you will get sacked. And even if you don't like your job, you prefer to have a job than not have a job. So that really on one level, when you take everything into account, and I ask you, would you prefer to go to the works tomorrow or go to the movies? Well, you'll actually prefer to go to work, wouldn't you? Because that's what you'll do. See, what you want at one level may not be what you want at another level. What you, what you will do, you will do what you want at one level. You'll do what you do what you do not want to do at one level because at another level you actually want to do it. Does that make sense? Okay. The fact that yeah, thanks. <laughs> you worked hard to understand that. I'll have to make it clearer for the next one. The fact that God loves us and does not want to punish us doesn't mean that he won't judge. There is something about judgment that he does not want to go through with. But he will. Because he is just. Justice happened to Israel of old. Within one generation of Jesus saying these things, the nation was destroyed. 
In AD 70, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Romans. Thousands of people were slaughtered. The temple was destroyed. The nation was utterly ruined. God did bring his people to account. As Jesus said. And that judgment from God was just a sign. It was just a pointer to the even bigger judgment to come. The judgment that will take place on the last day. When Jesus Christ comes to take his place, not just the judge of Israel, but of the whole world. And of that, of that day, it's not the nations who will be judged for what they've done, it's, it's each one, each individual. And God will titrate his justice perfectly to everyone on an individual level. And what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, how will you escape from being thrown into hell? It's an individual judgment, not just a national one. And yet there is a way out. God has provided the means of escape, the ways of salvation. Remember the words of, of Jesus to Jerusalem? He would send messages to them so they could escape the fall of Jerusalem, not just, and they would just kill them. Well, friends, don't do that to the messengers of Jesus when they warn you of the judgment to come. Listen to them. And they call you to obey him. Listen to them when they tell you how to be saved. And remember what Jesus said when he was so upset about the future of Jerusalem? How, how often would I have gathered you as children as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings but you would not. Israel of old did not escape God's punishment because they would not shelter under the wings of Jesus. But you can. You see, God had planned that Jesus would go to the cross. And on the cross he would die for sin. Jesus was the true house of God. The true temple, the ultimate dwelling place of God. And he would be abandoned by the Father. Desolate. The full punishment of God, of which the, the destruction of the temple was just a picture, fell on him. Not for his own sin. He's the only one who was sinless. But for the sins of others. He would die for the sins of Israel. He would die for the sins of the whole world. All the innocent blood from Abel to Zechariah would fall on his head. He would bear the guilt of it all. He would bear the punishment for it all. He would face the hell for it all. And he would be our substitute, our representative, under God's judgment for human sin. If only the leaders of Israel had turned to him. If only they had trusted him. If only they had yielded to him. A.D. 70 would not have happened. He would have sheltered them under his wings. When the time came for God's judgment, he would have already have taken it for them. And they would have found safety and security in him. Yet AD 70, remember, as it, bad as it was, not just appointed to the death of Jesus, but also a shadow of the final judgment. Judgment which is far worse than the destruction of one city. AD 70 is a moment in time. Eternity is forever. And when the day of judgment comes, as surely it will, 
there will be only one place where it is safe to hide. Under the wings of Jesus. Trusting in his promises. Saved by his death. Secure in his kingdom. Friends, don't make Israel's mistake. Don't reject your king. Don't reject your only hope for the day of judgment. Don't end up in hell. Don't end up with Jesus crying over you and saying, how often would I have brought him, how often would have I brought her under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but they would not. Jesus loves you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He died so you could be forgiven. But he will judge the world. He will do what he has to do. So turn to him, I beg you, and be saved. Before it's too late. So that you can hear another verdict in advance from the heavenly court. Not guilty. Forgiven by faith in the death of Jesus on your behalf.